reveal just this layer of dust underneath on the carpet. Everyone at St. Macar pretended that I was the only one that that ever happened to, but I'm kind of hoping that you guys will reassure me that some other people have dust underneath their bed as well. They've also been there when we've been trying to empty out the, car the containers in our kitchen and some of the ingredients had actually stuck to the inside of the containers. So just sharing with you some of the, the gross aspects of our life. So we've had people in and around all about our um, messy house and our messy situation recently. And just people who've come and who've loved us and just really blessed us um, just with their hands and their help just at this time. And in this passage, as I said, in 1 Corinthians 5, we're coming into the church and it's, in a, it's dealing with a messy situation. And so we're looking at this morning, how can we do life in a messy world? Because our can be messy at times. They're not always straightforward. Things aren't always clear cut. Things can get a bit messed up. And so we're looking at some of the three things that we can get from this passage this morning of how we can do life in a messy world. So three things, dealing with the mess, remembering the Passover and presenting Jesus to the world. So, Bibles. Do you do Bible Monitor? Do, who wants to be a Bible Monitor? Is it Tammy? Tammy will be the Bible Monitor today. If anyone needs a Bible, does anyone need a Bible? So if you don't have a Bible with you, um, you can take this. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please take it home as our gift to you. And um, we'd just love for you to be able to have that in your house as well. So don't feel like you need to return it at the end. And if you're in the same Bible as me, we're on page 1147, which is always nice to know the page number. And it should come up on the screen. Great. So... It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to, to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, or a slanderer, a drunkard, or swindler, do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you, are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Sorry, I just have to put that over there. <laughs> so... That passage brings up a whole bunch of questions, and you might be thinking, have a whole bunch of questions in and around it. I know that I did um, when I first realized that this was my passage that I had to preach on. Um, but I want us just to go back just for a few moments to the verses um, in 6 
to 9, sorry, 6 to 8, where Paul brings up the image of the Passover and the leaven and the unleavened bread. And I just want us to just stay with that image just for a little bit because it helps us to understand a little bit more about what he's kind of saying in this passage. So some of us may be familiar with this story, if they are Disney fans. Any Disney fans here? Oh, I'm surprised. Just a handful of Disney fans. We are all the Disney fans. So some of you may be familiar with this story from The Prince of Egypt, which is the film that Disney made, which was based on the book of Exodus or the story of Exodus. Um, And some of us may have actually read that story ourselves in the Bible. So in Exodus 12, um, this is where the story of the Passover is kind of shared with, um, with us in the Bible and with God's people. And what has happened is that God's people are trapped in a place of slavery. And so for generation after generation, they have been living um, under the rule of the Egyptians, under the rule of Pharaoh. They have had no rights. They have had no freedom. They have been oppressed. They have been pushed down. They've been beaten. They've been killed. They've lived a really terrible existence. And so God has decided to send a man called Moses who goes into Egypt, who then wants um, to demand that Pharaoh lets the people go so that he gives them their freedom. And God sends several different signs um, to encourage Pharaoh to let the people go. And Pharaoh keeps saying no, until eventually we come to this tenth sign, which God sends. And this is where the story of the Passover comes in. And so what God says that he's going to do is that he is going to pass through the, the city at night. And he is going to take the life of the firstborn of every Egyptian household. And at that point, he knows that this is going to be the thing that is going to lead his people into a place of freedom, where they're going to be released from that slavery, released from that oppression, released from that trapped place into the freedom that he has for them. And so what he tells them to do is that what they have to do is they have to take a lamb, and it has to be a year old, and it has to be completely perfect, with absolutely no blemish or any mark or any deformity or anything on it at all. And they have to take it and they sacrifice it. And then they take that meat and they have to prepare it in a very specific way. And they have to eat that meat. But they also take the blood of the lamb and place it around the doorframe of the house. And at that point, the, the death passes over their household. So it passes over the household of God's people. And what he also tells them to do is that they've not to have any leavened bread. I didn't really know what that was. But basically, leavened bread is like the soft, fluffy stuff. Like if you go to the supermarket, and how many of us like the bakery bit? The smell of the bread, it's really good. So you get the crusty, the crusty bit on the outside and you cut in when it's super soft on the inside. That would be like leavened bread, anything that's made with yeast to cause it to rise. And he tells them that they have to get rid of that, anything to do with that, and that they have to have unleavened bread, which is basically anything that's made without the yeast in it. And so that's the story, and that's the point that kind of Paul is referring to in this passage in 6 to 8. So for the Jews, that leavened bread, that puffy bread, had come to represent their whole life in Egypt. So where they'd been told what to do, where they'd been told what they couldn't do, where their whole lives had been controlled, they'd had no freedom, they'd been squashed down. And the unleavened bread came to represent all that God had for them. So it was like a move away from that death and that control. And basically God encourages them to celebrate that Passover and to celebrate that festival every single year um, with the Passover celebration. And that's what Paul's talking about in this passage in verses 6 to 8. When I was researching this talk, I discovered that cashering is something that is a traditional um, 
that happen, tradition that happens in Jewish culture with God's people before um, Passover takes place. Now, the actual Passover celebration is just a week long itself, but cashering is where they start removing from the house any trace of leaven, so any yeast or anything at all. And it is an absolutely enormous process. If you imagine spring cleaning and then times it by about a million, I think you would probably get what seems to be the equivalent of cashering. They basically take everything, clothes, door handles, cupboards, um, toys, linen, everything is taken and cleaned. And it, every piece of leaven that could possibly be found in the house is removed. So it starts weeks and weeks and weeks before Passover. I mean, some people in certain situations have to remove their entire stoves from their house just to make sure that they don't have the leaven in the household. So it's this massive um, process. But traditionally, the night before Passover begins, they go through the house with a candle and a little shovel and a feather. And they leave 10 pieces of leaven in the house for people to find, so whether they've got kids or whether they find it themselves. And the idea is that they go through every single room and they check and they sweep out any trace of that leaven that's been left over. They take it out and they remove it. And basically what we have here in this passage is Paul encouraging the church to do some sweeping of the house. They need to go through every room with that candle, with that sweeper, and clean out um, the things that have been left behind. Because sin has left an obvious mess in this passage. And in the beginning of the passage, he's highlighted the sin of a man who has been sleeping with his father's wife. And what is really clear about this particular act is that it's been going on for a really long time because Paul hasn't heard about it from the church. He's heard about it through the grapevine. So people have started talking about it and it's passed from place to place. And he has discovered that this has been going on for a long time. He says a man is sleeping with his father's wife. And the Greek word that's used to describe it there is pornea, which basically is used to identify any kind of sex that takes place out with the boundaries of marriage that God has kind of defined. So the sin that he is talking about here is constant, and it's one that the man has embraced as part of his lifestyle. So it's one that he has um, tolerated and embraced and accepted as his way of living, but it's something that it shouldn't be tolerated. So initially Paul's talking about sex and he's talking about sex outside the boundaries of God's um, definition of marriage. But in verse 11 he also mentions other sins as well. He talks about sexual immorality again. He talks about greed, idolatry, slandering. He talks about drunkenness. He talks about swindling or cheating people um, out of their money. And these are things that are not to be embraced. And that's what he's saying to the church. These are things that are not to be taken hold of. These are not things that have to be held on to. These are not meant to be part of our everyday living. And why? Why does he say that? And why does God say that? Sin is something that we choose to leave behind when we start following Jesus. And so it's no something, not something that we keep wanting to hold on to or look to or hold tightly to. And sin is wickedness and it spreads. I don't know how many of us have gone for our weekly shop and we have popped into the supermarket, and we've gone in to get some fruit for the week, if we're being healthy. So we go in, and we grab some kiwis, we grab some bananas, we get some plums, nitrines, any other fruit. See, maybe there's some pineapple lovers out there, I don't know. But grabbing whatever you want, and then you take all your stuff home, 
and then you start to unpack it, and then you find that this satsuma, this satsuma bag that looked so good on the shop shelf, you find, you open it up, you cut that netting, and inside you find one of them that's like totally green or a little bit brown, and it starts to mush up in your hand. Has anyone had that experience? I'm not alone, that's good. And you're so disappointed because they looked so good. They looked so tasty on the shelf. And then you get them home and there's this horrible mold everywhere. And not only that, but you then discover that it has not only impacted itself, so not only have you got this green thing in your hand, but it's also impacted all of the other oranges that have been touching it as well. And they've all gone moldy. If we don't recognize sin, and this is what's happened here with the Corinthians, then we're giving it permission to grow. We're given it permission to remain, and we're given it permission to stay. And what Paul is saying is that sin is destructive, and it's damaging, and it's a return to that slavery that he talked about with the Passover. Sin can't be tolerated. And Paul really criticizes the church as well here. He says that they've not done anything to help this man or his situation. And in the message, the translation, it actually says that the church has treated it, meaning the man's act of incest, as acceptable behavior. And what they haven't done is challenged him. What they haven't done is spoken God's truth into his life. And what they haven't done is mourned. So they haven't been sad. They haven't grieved about what's happened in their church family. Mourning, that act of mourning was an admission of saying that what happened wasn't right, that what happened in their lives wasn't right, and they hadn't done that. What it says in the passage is that they boasted. When we mourn or when we sad about something that we've done that was wrong, we're basically recognizing that we've not lived in a way that God's asked us to, and so we've fallen short of that. And so our attitudes and amongst all are really key and basically just go to go back to that picture of the cleaning of the house, you know, going through every room and sweeping up the crumbs. Basically what's happened here in the church in Corinthia is that they had gone through the house, they'd taken the light, and they'd gone into the different rooms, and they'd discovered the crumbs on the floor, or they'd discovered this part of this big loaf of bread on the floor. And instead of clearing it and helping to remove it, they'd left it and it had grown all of that mold um, within the house. In the message it says, you can't go along with this, treating it as acceptable behavior. And so what we have to do is sweep house. We have to remodel, we have to change and remove some of the things from the past, bringing it into God's light. I love this verse in Ephesians where um, Paul says, have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. And this is a bit that I think is so amazing and so God. Everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. So when we bring any of our darkness into God's light, when his light shines on us, not only does it become visible, but he takes it and transforms it and makes it something that is a light for others. Christians were meant to be different. You know, if everyone else, if we were just to be the same as everyone else, then there'd be no point in being different at all. And so there's no, there's no escaping the fact that we do live life in a messy world, and sometimes that mess impacts us, and sometimes we bring our own mess into our own situations. But as Christians, we're called to deal with the mess. So we're called to bring God's light into our life, and to bring God's light into one another's life, and to deal with that mess. 
And maybe this morning we are aware, even as I've been speaking, of some of those places where maybe God's light is shining and we know that we need to clean up the crumbs or we need to bring that again to him. Or maybe we can think of a friend that we know that we need to have a conversation with or speak to and just bring God's light, his truth, his promises back into their lives. So life in a messy world means, first of all, that we deal with the mess as God's people and as God's church. But the second thing that we have to do is to remember the Passover. So I want you to think back to that moment again of the Passover and the people of, in, in Israel who were sitting in Egypt and they were there at night time. They had just the light of the candle in front of them. And I imagine that they could hear around them the cries from other households going up as people lost their loved ones. And they sat in their house and death passed over. So they had no grief, no death visited their household because it passed over. You know, they were saved because God made a way for them to escape his judgment, for, him to, for them to pass under his judgment, to, for his judgment to pass over them. And God has made a way for us to receive um, that Passover as well. He said, and Paul says in verse 7, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. We can only ever deal with the mess that is in our own lives, as in our world, if we remember the Passover. Our Passover, that moment where we know that Jesus has rescued us from slavery of darkness, from the oppression that we might have experienced before him by dying on the cross for our sins. And he says in Luke, this is my blood poured out for you. This is my body given for you. And that's what Jesus says. And in this passage, there's a call from Paul to remember that Passover, Christ, our Passover lamb. When I read this passage, and when I started preparing it, and I started thinking about it, I just sat down with God because I felt so deeply challenged by it and by the words that were in it. And I just did a little bit of that whole sitting down and just wanting to sweep house with God, you know. And as I was preparing it, I just felt, how could I possibly stand and do this talk knowing that I still struggle with um, snapping and gossiping at work? How can I still stand and do this talk when I know that I still struggle with some of my own pride? And just as I was praying that and bringing all of that to Jesus, he just gave me a picture of him coming and just placing his hands around the doorway, which I knew was my doorway. And he just put his hands there. And I knew that that was him just reminding me of his Passover. You know, Jesus, our Passover lamb, who takes our judgment that we don't have to take. And I know that I'm not there yet. I know that I'm not in this place of perfection. I know that I'm not exactly as I'm meant to be but I know that my heart is towards him and towards God and that I want his ways to become my ways. This morning is not about condemnation so it's not about leaving feeling a hopeless guilt because that's not what God has for us but it's about repentance and a reminder for all of us that we can actually turn away from sin which is probably one of the most incredible things about the gospel. We can actually deal with this mess. We can deal with the mess around us because of Jesus, our Passover lamb. We can deal with that mess. 
So sweeping the house isn't just about getting rid of the, the duff stuff. It's about remembering that Jesus is our Passover lamb who takes our judgment and that we can move into that new life because of what he's done for us. And so he can meet with each one of us this morning. He can meet with each one of us in our doorway because he is our Passover lamb. In verse 9, Paul then goes on to say, Therefore let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And what he's saying is that every single day, when you wake up, as soon as you step out of the bed, you're remembering that Jesus has been your Passover lamb. And that is something to celebrate every single morning when you wake up. When I was reading, one commentator put it like this, Christ is now our Passover lamb, and our Passover celebration doesn't just last one week, as it does in Jewish tradition, but it lasts a whole lifetime, because the leaven of sin is put out permanently. Jesus has paid for our sin permanently, and we never make peace with it again. So we flee it, we flee the presence of sin, and we embrace our Savior, our Savior Jesus, our Passover lamb, and we remember that every single morning when we step out of bed. And Titus, Paul says, Christ gave himself for us that he might purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And so every single day we're encouraged to remember that Passover, to remember our Jesus who sacrificed for us, our new life, our new freedom, our new selves given to us by him through his sacrifice. The old is totally gone totally gone, and the new life in Jesus has come every single day, every single moment in our lives. The house is continually being swept clean. I have been a Christian for a number of years now, long time, and over the course of those many years of walking with Jesus, I have made a hundred million mistakes, and there are many different things that I know that God has been working with me on and, and challenged me on and caused me to shape. And that new life in him is the new promise that he offers to us. And when I, before I really knew Jesus, um, I used to make terrible, terrible decisions in and around the area of relationships. Really just terrible decisions that were not helpful for me or the other people that I was in relationship with. And basically, the, my need to be in relationship would drive me into situations that were destructive and were damaging and were unhelpful. And until... I brought that to Jesus. That was kind of the pattern. But then when I brought that part of me to Jesus, the amazing thing happened. And it was like before, my need to be in relationships and my need to do it my way had like this grip on me and it would force me into different situations that were destructive or damaging or unhelpful. And it was like when I invited, when Jesus came into my life and he came into that part of my, my whole life, it was like, instead of that thing having a grip of me, he had a grip of it. And it was totally changed. It was totally transformed. And so that reminder of that celebration, Jesus is our Passover lamb, means that those things that sometimes feel like they have a grip of us, I'm pretty sure you know what I'm talking about. Does, do people know what I'm talking about? Yeah, some of you are being bold and nodding at me. <laughs> Those things that feel like they have a grip of us, we can bring them to Jesus and then he takes a hold of them. He takes a hold of them and then he changes it and brings his new life into those areas of our hearts and into our lives. The reality is that each one of us here 
every single one of us is a person who is in process. And we are always going to be moving towards that person that God has made us to be until the day when we get to go home and we get to celebrate life forever with him. As a church, we're not expected to be perfect because Jesus is our perfection. But we are expected to be persistent in the pursuit of the things of God. So we're not expected to be perfect, but we are expected to be persistent in the pursuit of the things of God. So we've not to embrace our sin. That's the challenge from the first passage. Deal with the mess. Don't embrace it. Deal with it. Get rid of it. But we have to embrace our Savior. We have to remember the Passover every single day. And maybe for some of us this morning, that's what we need to remember. We need to remember that Jesus is our Passover lamb and we're not having to live with all of that guilt that we've been carrying around for years and years. Actually, that he's removed that. Maybe for some of us, it's just to know that Jesus has taken hold of that thing that feels like it has a hold of us. And we can bring that again to him this morning. So life in a messy world, we deal with the mess. We don't embrace it, we deal with it. We bring it to him, we bring it into his light. We remember the Passover. And then finally, we present Jesus to the world. So Paul, in this passage, in case you didn't pick it up, he is pretty furious. He's furious because he's devastated that within the family of Christ, there could be such an acceptance, such an embracing of sin, because our lives are supposed to be about moving closer to our Savior. He knows that we are living in a messy world, but he also knows that a messy world is watching the church. He says in verse 1, even pagans do not tolerate this. So another way of saying that would be like, even people who are outside of God's family, even people who don't know this amazing new life of Jesus would not say that this was okay. And as much as he talks about the people that are inside the church, he's so concerned with people who are outside the church. In verse 9 and 10, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, greedy, swindlers, or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. He's concerned with the people outside of God's family. And in verse 12 to 13, he says, What business is it of mine to judge those outside of the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Why is he so concerned? Because it matters. It matters how we do life together. It matters how we do life in a messy world because we reflect his life to the world around us. And Jesus said in Matthew 5:14, you are the light of the world. And so we carry the light of Jesus into the world to the people around us. And so how we live life together and how we do life in a messy world really matters for the world outside. You know, the world is watching us. If you think about the media, um, there's countless different examples of how the media or the world is watching the church to see how they will respond to different situations. And as I was kind of thinking of and preparing for this talk, something that I was reminded of was the Charleston shooting tragedy. And at first, there was the initial focus on the awful um, nature of the shooting and the tragedy of the people who had been lost and the grief of those people who had lost um, loved ones that were dear to them. But after that came the focus on the mercy and the forgiveness and grace that had been shown by some of the people who had been victims of that tragedy. Um, one of the loved ones who 
had lost someone in the shooting, they actually went to the trial and they actually said to the person who committed the shooting, um, this is what they said, you took something very precious from me. I'll never be able to talk to her again, hold her again, but I forgive you. You hurt me, you hurt a lot of people, but God forgive you and I forgive you. And I met a lot of people in that week, and maybe you did too, who were really amazed that the church would do that. They were really amazed that God would do that. I often share at school, I'm a teacher, I'm not a pupil. <laughs> thought I should clarify that, maybe just to make it clear for everyone. Um, so I'm a teacher, and I quite often share at school. It just feels funny when you say at school, you forget that it's your workplace, kind of, or other people don't know that. Um, and I kind of often share about the stuff that happens in church. Um, try and bring it up occasionally. And they're amazed by, you know, our students who are willing to give up their free time to serve the families in our church so that they can go and have a night off and have some couple time together. You know, they're, they've been amazed at the fact that people came and did so much for our house that we've just been blessed really beyond anything that we deserve in terms of how people have helped us to clean and to gather and to provide. You know, people that have given us furniture, um, just a whole countless bunch of different things. You know, people are amazed by what God does and how God uses his people to bless one another. People are touched by what they see God doing and and how we, how we love one another and how we care for one another and how we do life together. Because the world is looking for another option. They're looking for another option to that addiction that cripples them. They're looking for another option to the countless streams of fruitless relationships. They're looking for another option for the grip and obsession of money. They're looking for another option from the endless emptiness of things that just keep going on. The world is looking for another option. And I know that Jesus gave me my other option. He gave me a life that is filled way beyond anything I could ever have dreamed of, of love and healing and goodness and joy. And he gave me that other option away from a life that was filled with fear and hurt and doubt. You know, the, I imagine for so many of us here, Jesus gave us that other option. And we've experienced that new life in his name, that new life with him. And that world, the world outside, is looking for another option. And as God's people, we are called to show what it is to live with Jesus, to show what it is to know his plans, his purposes, his way, his love for, for his people. The transforming power of the cross in our lives. We're called to present Jesus to the world. So we are a light and we're a witness and we're called to reflect his plans to the world that is out there watching, looking for that other option. So life in a messy world, I do not believe that this, by the way, is the comprehensive how to do life in a messy world, but some pointers from this passage. What do we do? We deal with the mess. So as a church and in our own lives as individuals, we welcome God's light into our lives and we speak God's light and God's life into one another's lives and we uncover the crumbs and we do that cleaning up stuff we do it on our own and we do it together that's part of what church is for we remember the Passover 
So we go back to Jesus. We always go back to Jesus. And we celebrate the fact that he has set us free and his goodness to us. So we embrace our Savior. And then we present Jesus to the world. So we're presenting Jesus to that world that is desperately looking for another option. Shall we stand?